There's one item that's not on your bulletin. You can mark your calendars for November the 13th. November the 13th is when we're going to have our 20th anniversary for Country Bible Church. And, of course, that's going to be on a Sunday. And we're going to have our fellowship dinner then. Normally we have it on the first Sunday. We will have communion on the first Sunday of November as usual, but we're going to have our fellowship dinner the following week on the 13th when we have our 20th anniversary uh, so that we can have a, a, enough time to have that special service and have the meal fellowship afterwards. There will be people coming from uh, roundabout that have not been here in years. They've moved away, and we might have several guests to join us. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness, for Your omnipotence, for Your omniscience. We thank You that You are a very present help in time of trouble. Certainly there's enough trouble to go around. We thank You for this particular time that we can come and focus and concentrate and drink in that manna from heaven that You have made for us today. So we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. We've just gone over verses 12 through 13. A great miracle that occurred. First thing I'm going to put on the board is a map. Maps are very important for us to understand what's going on. These are the different cities and kings that gathered themselves to go against Gilgal. This, this green arrows here show them gathering themselves together and they went to uh, attack Gibeon. Of course, the Gibeons had given word to Joshua. They were camped over here in Gilgal and that they needed help. Joshua had given his word. The leaders had given their word that they would help them, even though they were uh, conned into doing so. His purple arrow shows their all-night march to Gilgal. There was a tremendous battle there. And, of course, uh, God delivered the enemy into their hands. This yellow arrow here shows their retreat. In full retreat, they were... Uh, Going, this is about, by the way, from here down all the way here to Debir is about 40 miles. So you can already see that there was, this was quite a feat. This is about, all oh, 15 miles, something like that, going over these mountains at night, full gear. When they got to Gibeon, they had a huge battle. And then they're pursuing for 40 miles. This would exhaust anyone. But... The reason I'm bringing this up again and bringing this to light is because there's a few points that I want to make before we move on because there's so much for us to glean from what took place. This, is, this isn't just a Bible story. This is a factual account. We have Joshua and his men come all the way here to around. They're, getting, they're close to a Makeda. 
and they need more light. And it, you, when you read the Scriptures, you don't see, it's not that apparent of what's really going on here. They needed more light and more time to kill more of the enemy. Because if they didn't kill more of the enemy, if the sun went down at the normal time, it would, it would be dark and the pursuit would have to end. And during that time, it would give all of these Canaanites, their enemy, the time to regroup and counterattack. They knew the land. They knew everything. And so Joshua knew this. What we're really seeing here is Joshua had to kill the enemy or the enemy was going to kill him. And so he did something pretty audacious. He asked God to just stop the sun. And by the, moon, by the way, the moon too, while you're at it, so we can have enough light to continue the pursuit. And of course, God did that. Actually, he didn't stop the sun. He stopped the rotation of the earth so they would have enough light. Most of the time when you're going through this Scripture, this is what it's focused on is this great miracle. And indeed, it is a tremendous miracle. One of three that we're going to look at. We've already covered another one. That was the hailstones that fell on nothing but the enemy. More of the enemy were killed by the hailstones that God hailed down on them than were killed by the Israelites themselves. And that's the, that's the focus. But... And it's, I'm not taking away or trying to diminish from that miracle, but what I am trying to do is make this very relevant to each one of you, and of course to myself, that this is a parallel of what is going on in your life and my life today. Because most people don't get it. Most people, and I'm including believers as well, think, I can handle most of the things in life. I, I, I got it. I don't need God's help. I don't need to go to Him because I'm a pretty smart person. I'm fairly wise. I have certain talents. And when I need God, I'll let Him know. And they think in terms of when there's an, a, a crisis, when there's nowhere else to go, then I'll go to God. And that is why this is so important. Because what this is pointing out to us is that we need to understand that we are in a war. And there's not even one day that we can relax. We can't handle it. We don't have a handle on anything. Christ said, without me you can do nothing. That's the point that I think... This is, I, I think this is a bigger message than even God stopping the sun, which most people, that's the, about all they get out of this. But the message is... You can't coast. You can't think that I, I have things covered and when I need God, I'll let Him know. Because the enemy will devour you. You need God's help every single day. That's one of the large messages that we see in Joshua chapter 10 at this particular time. So I'm going to give you some points. I think it's four or five points here trying to get this into perspective. First of all, I want you to understand that Joshua was obedient. He wasn't in this fix to where his troops were exhausted, they had no sleep, they had no food, and they were in the heart of enemy territory and they were running out of time to kill enough of the enemy where they couldn't regroup and have a counterattack. So it wasn't discipline that caused this untenable situation. So if you're a believer and you think, well, as long as I'm obedient, as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm faith resting, I'm rebounding, I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, then it should be a pretty smooth cruise. Not so. And this is an illustration. Joshua was right on the beam. He was doing everything that God said, and now he finds himself in an impossible situation. They're going to be wiped out. They're going to be annihilated apart from God's intervention, doing something that is so supernatural that hardly, I don't know if any one of us would ask God to do such a thing. But Joshua, Joshua knew that God could do it. That's the second point. 
It would be a disaster if Joshua tried to handle the situation without the Lord. He would have been, the whole group would have been annihilated, even though he was obedient. You see, this is highlighting the forces of darkness that surround us and pervade our space every single day. He understood he could not handle it alone. He needed God's help. That's a message in itself. I'm trying to dispel the idea that you can live your life, even one day, even one hour, under your own power, under your own wisdom, under your own expertise, and think that you can not be overtaken and devoured by the enemy. So he, he didn't try to go it alone. He knew he needed supernatural help. The third point is that he knew there was no limit to what God could do to deliver him. I don't know about you, but I've never asked God for something that big. That's a pretty big order to stop the sun. But he knew that God was faithful. Do you know why he knew God was faithful? Because God had shown him over and over and over again. Remember, even before they crossed the river. When they crossed the river. When they got to the other side. And they got to Jericho. And they went to Ai. And they went to, uh, up to worship in the northern part. And God... He saw that God was faithful. So, he knew that the Lord could deliver him. How about your life? When was the last time that you really depended on the Lord. You asked the Lord to do something because you knew it was out of your hands and you saw the Lord come through and deliver. You saw His faithfulness. This is uh, builds momentum for us to do that over and over again. And that's what our life should be about. Every single day we have a barrage of things that would turn our head away from God. I don't know how many people today are at sports events Maybe they're, what do they call it, tailgating? Is that what they call it? Uh, yeah, tailgate parties. Uh, they're at the, the sports or they're on the lake. Or, and I'm not telling you you're going to hell if you go to, on vacation. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but it can become a pattern to where other things are more important than what the issue is, and that is your relationship with your Maker. And there is an angelic conflict going on. You see, we don't see it. We can't see the demons. We can't see the, the fallen angels. We can't see the elect angels. And for a lot of people, that means, oh, well, they don't exist. If I don't see them, they're not there. And they live their life full of nothing but details and in the material world. And that is a disaster. And your life will spiral out of control. And when you need to go to the Lord like Joshua did, it's going to seem very strange because you're not used to doing it. You, listen to this. If you want to make a note, make this note because this is important. It's very short. You cannot bother God. There's nothing too small that you think, oh, well, you know, God's busy. He's got, what, five billion people? I don't know how many people there are. Uh, he's got a lot on his plate, so I, won't, I, I don't want to bother. That is, is not biblical to begin with, but it's nonsense. You need him every single day, even on the little decisions. Uh, Carrie tells me all the time, when she goes shopping, before she goes in the store, she'll say a, a little prayer. Father, help me make good decisions. Help me to stay away from uh, things that are... Uh, not good buys that are junk, or just just a little prayer going up like that. Now you might think, what's what's that? Well, it's doing. First of all, it is being obedient because we are to pray continually. That doesn't mean that you never stop praying, but it just means like uh, a cough. If you have, have you ever had a cough and you're trying to sleep and you're just and you can't have, <coughs> and you start coughing. That's the way prayer should be. God wants you to have a relationship with Him on a moment-by-moment basis. It'd be a good idea to thank Him sometimes too and not just have your laundry list of what you want Him to do for you. That's what this is about. And so, He knew that there was no limit that the Lord could deliver Him. And here's the fourth thing. He asked the Lord to do what He couldn't do. 
And see, that's what I'm trying to tell you is there's so much that you can't do that I can't do. You cannot handle this rest of this day without the Lord's help. And knowing that is huge. That way you're going to talk to Him. You're going to, not just when you sit down and have a prayer. Not just when you lay down to go to sleep. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I said that about five jillion times when I was a little boy. That's all I knew. That was my prayer. I never even stopped to think what it meant, but it was a routine. And a lot of people, a lot of believers live their lives that way. James chapter 4 verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You're not bothering God. He wants you to have that relationship with Him. Okay. That's all I want to do as far as going back to that part. Let's look at verse 14 now. We're in Joshua chapter 10. Verse 14 reflects on what God had just done, stopping the sun and the moon. And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And that uh, word for fought in the Hebrew is lecham, L-E-C-H-A-M. And I'm not spitting, that's the way you pronounce it. We would like to say lecham, but the Jews say lecham, way down here. Lakam is a nifel participle. It means to fight, to make war, to overcome, to conquer. I want you to underline that part. The Lord fought for Israel. The Israelites were God's chosen people. Do you think that the Lord is, fights for you? Same thing. These aren't just Bible stories. This is for our edification, for us to understand God is on our side. He knows everything. There's no limit to His power. And He will fight for you. But He's not going to fight for you if you're trying to handle it yourself. It's essentially, God is in the wings and He's standing there. You know, just this awesome presence. And we're over here trying to handle these details and we're all in a dither. And God is right there. All you have to do is ask. Oh, I got it, God. I got you. And finally, you're, over, you're overwhelmed. You have no other place to go. And you turn, can I get a little help over here? Why go through that whole silly process? The Lord will fight for us just as He fought for the Jews. Now, verse 15 is a summary statement. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him and returned to the camp to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was further away. It was over there by Jericho. And now we're going to continue of what happened, verses 16 through 27, actually embellishes and gives more information about what happened before they went to Gilgal. This, this is the Jewish style. They will make a, a statement and then they'll go back and they'll fill in the gaps. And that's what we're having in verses 16 through 20. Verse 16. <clears throat> now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. These are the same five kings, remember I showed you on the map, that had aligned themselves and gone against Gibeon. Now, the Gibeonites were Canaanites, deserved to be annihilated, but because Joshua and the leaders swore an oath before God that they would accept them, which means they came under their umbrella of protection, because of that, they were duty-bound to follow that oath, not to break the oath. And God is going to honor that. And all these things that have happened, even to the point of the sun standing still, had to do with them honoring their oath. God takes oaths very seriously. We've already gone over that. But these are, these are those same five kings. In verse 17, And it was told Joshua, saying that the five kings have hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. Now, there's a lot I'm not going to linger here very long, but there is one thing I want to point out. They thought they were safe. They thought that they were going to uh, be 
absent, out of sight, out of mind, and that would avoid the wrath of God coming upon them. And that's the way a lot of people are. They think they can hide from God. We'll go in a cave. See, the reason that these Canaanites were being destroyed because God was pouring out His wrath on them. They had 420 years to turn it around. Everybody feels sorry for these five kings and they feel sorry for these Canaanites that God is using the Israelites to annihilate and they don't think about God gave them 420 years of grace. They never turn it around. If I could go into great detail about what they were doing, it would make even some of the hardest men here blush. They were exceedingly evil and demonic. So God is handling this situation. And they thought that they could, they could hide in a cave and avoid the wrath of God. This isn't the only place in the Bible that this occurs. It also occurs in the last book of the Bible. And let's go there. Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. This is the sixth seal being poured out during the tribulational period. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15. What happened back there was a preview of what's going to happen in the future. Revelation 6.15 And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. What are they trying to do? They're trying to avoid the wrath of God. Look at verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, no, no doubt there's some pretty smart people that are going to be there hiding in caves. Do they really think that hiding in a cave is a good idea to hide from the wrath of the Lamb? My question is, why didn't they humble themselves and seek salvation from the one that was getting their attention by pouring out all these six seals, breaking the seals and the judgment coming down on them? What I want you to see is, I don't have much pity for people who have 420 years like these Canaanites had, and then they hide themselves in a cave and think that they're going to be safe when they had all that opportunity. Now it's time for judgment. And that's something that a lot of people don't get. This nation as a whole does not get. There is a time of grace, and we've been under grace for a long time. But God's judgment is surely coming. And the thing of it is that when it does occur, for some people, it humbles them. And they turn to the Lord and, and ask for salvation. Do they get it? Yes, they get salvation. If they're humble and they recognize that they're a sinner on the way to hell, they're going to get salvation. They're going to be delivered in that sense, whether they're delivered physically or not, really is inconsequential compared to where they're going to spend eternity, isn't it? So what we have here is kings here as well as over here in Joshua that are stiff-necked and the more that they suffer from the wrath of God, the more bitter they have. They, they get. They get so hardened that they say, let the rocks fall on us. They would rather die with the rocks caving in on them than be humble and recognize their wretched condition and ask for deliverance from the Lord. That's what I want you to see. It, same thing is going to happen in Revelation chapter 6 that we see back over here in Joshua chapter 10. Let's go back over here to Joshua chapter 10. So right in your margin in verse 16, Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 and 17. This is typology. This is a preview of what's coming yet again. History repeats itself. It's going to repeat itself in the, in the tribulation. 
Verse 17, And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have, have been found hidden in uh, the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll the large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack. Attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Now, before in chapter 8, we saw that Joshua broke this military principle. When you have the enemy on the run, what do you do? You don't slow down. You don't back away. You pressure. You push all the harder. You're ready to give them the coup de grace. You know what the coup de grace is? You ever seen the bullfighters when they take the sword and right through those shoulder blades of the bull? That's the coup de grace. That's the... You finish the job. That's the time to do it. Now, in chapter 8, in the middle, they, after they had um, uh, taken care of AI, it was a great time to continue the pursuit because they were on the, on the offensive. But they broke that pattern, went up to Shechem, and they worshipped. And what, what they were, while they were doing it, these five kings are getting all prepared. They're organizing themselves to move against the Gibeonites. But it didn't matter because they were being obedient to God. And because they were obedient, God kept all the Canaanites off of them and continued to, give them to be delivered. But this is a different set of circumstances. They didn't have to break away and do something that God had ordered them to do and be obedient to it. Now they're pursuing. And that's why he said, put rocks over the face of the cave where they can't get away and we'll keep pursuing. We'll keep after them. I don't know if you like to watch boxing. I like boxing. Um, I like kickboxing. I'm the, the, the more bloody it is, the better I like it. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, I like to watch football. Uh, well, I used to play football. But in any case, um, have you ever seen in, when they're boxing and the guy gets a good punch and the guy's kind of stunned like this? What does the other boxer do? Charges all men. He's really pounding then, isn't he? That's the principle. When you have someone on the ropes, you finish the job. You stay on them. And that's what Joshua is doing here. He had them on the ropes. He said, put the, put the uh, rocks in front of the cave where they can't get away, and then we'll come back and take care of business after that. So had uh, were destroyed, and the survivors remained of them. The few survivors were That means is that they took the few. See, Canaanites finally wise up behind the full city after another. They said, we better go and get out behind these walls. Get after them. Anyway, by their side, but they behind walls, whatever there were left, they headed for the walls. Verse 21. And all the folk were to Joshua at Makeda, and no one uttered a, uh, uttered a word as the of Israel. Now, what the, in them, there was not one death, none of them were wounded in the whole business miracle. Hailstorms hitting all the enemy, but not there. You have thousands of, of soldiers in battle, and they're chasing them, and there's not a wound, not one death. The whole thing is the same. No fatalities. And with all those thousands, and all those, and all those soldiers, and all those fears, and all that going on, that everyone circumstances are, you send him, and capable of delivering you. From the mouth of the cave and bring these eyes And they did send from Ave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Ephraim. Brings out to the chief of war with him. Come put feet on the neck of the king so that they came near. Now I've been, I'm my best, go too fast because I'm blown away by this verse. And you think, well, what do you see that I don't see? Well, I'm going I'm to tell you. First of all, I want to tell you, this is, I learned last night when I was studying, every once in a while, you're looking at something and you're connecting the dots. And I literally said, wow, had no idea. That's what's in this verse. Just stick with me and I wish I had more time, but I'll just keep going. I'm not going to get as far as I would like. But this is what I was looking forward to, to get to this verse, because it is just phenomenal. First of all, let's think about the neck, Okay. Falling on the neck. The Bible has a lot to say about the neck, and it can be used in different ways. For instance, falling on the neck 
is used as an emotional embrace in a greeting or farewell. Um, when someone was leaving or someone came, you would you put your head, you know, you fall on their neck, you would embrace them. Uh, this is found in uh, Genesis chapter 33, verse 4. I believe that's when Esau and Jacob came after they had been estranged and they, they came together and they fell on the neck and it was an emotional embrace and greeting. Also in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, you have it used in that fashion. Something that is an emotional uh, greeting or farewell, it's, it's, it's a good thing. The word neck is also used to speak of one's spiritual condition. To stiffen or harden one's neck means to rebel or resist. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, you ever heard of a stiff-necked person? doesn't mean that he just had a stiff neck. Now, I knew a guy like this. I'm sorry, I've got to take this time to tell you this. When I was working in high school during the summers as a plumber's helper, there was a guy named Stiff-Neck McNeil. That's... <laughs> That's his neck. That's what everybody called him, Stiff Neck Manil. I don't know what happened to his neck, but he couldn't bend his neck. So when he looked down, he'd have to go like this and look up like this, and everywhere he looked, he'd go like this. And he was a walking tobacco factory. Everything that you could smoke, chew, or spit, or whatever was in his pockets. It just overflowed. And um, when I was working down in a ditch way in a hot summer, uh, he'd call me kid. What you doing down there, kid? You know, I'm, I'm working, and... Uh, he would take whatever it was, snuff, spit, or whatever, and he'd spit and then hit on that pipe right by me and just, and it's 100 degrees, and I'm just, oh. but he got his because he told me to drive these stakes, you know, uh, two by four stakes with a sledgehammer. And so I started doing this, get out of the way, boy, I'll show you how to do that. <laughs> he swung that sledge and missed the stake and hit himself in the shin, and he was on crutches for about a month. Stiff neck, Manil. I'm sorry, I just had to go there. <laughs> One of a kind. Uh, so it's not talking about a physically stiff-necked person like poor Mr. McNeil. But uh, it's talking about a spiritual condition. It's this stiff-neckedness is a stubborn, self-willed person determined to resist God's will. And an illustration of it is in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You can look these up on your leisure. I'm going to move on because I'm trying to get to a place. I don't know if I'll make it or not. Sometimes bands or chains were put around the necks to enslave people. Isaiah 8.8, 8, Isaiah 52.2, Jeremiah chapter 27.12. Now here it is showing total subjection. That's the idea, total subjection. And I have a PowerPoint if I can get it up here to show you what that is about. If I can push the right, there it is. Okay, this is one illustration of it. Here you have the person down on their knees, and this is the king. He's got a bow and a spear and so forth. When you're down on your knee and someone has their foot on your neck, that is a sign of total subjection. Here's another uh, one here. This actually was from one of my uh, theological books, and it's of this particular scene where I guess this would be Joshua, and these are the enemy laying down. They have their foot on their necks. The only thing, I don't think this is really right as far as all the other ones that I've seen. The person is either on their stomach or they're nailed down, and you have your foot on the back of their neck. And I'm not too crazy about these guys. They kind of look like hippies to me anyway, but I don't think they had their hair that long. They, they, they're, they're not very military looking. They're just kind of you know, hanging around there. But anyway, that's another picture. Now, this is a relief that was taken. Uh, there's several of these in Egypt. See the person down? I don't know if you can see. Here's his outline, his head. This is the person kneeling down, and here's the guy with this spear over him. He's got his foot on the neck. You see that? So that's what our Scripture is showing, is that it's total subjugation, that uh, a sign of complete victory. Now, 
when we go back and look at this, we're going to see that um, it's, it, it, it was a military ritual. But, you know, rituals always have something more than just what appears on the surface. What this verse is describing goes much deeper than just five kings with their feet on the necks of these people. That's not the real issue. That's not what this is about. Joshua is showing something very profound to his staff and to the people. Go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Some of you already know this before we get there. This is when God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent. Then he will pronounce judgment on the woman and then on the man. Of course, the man and the woman are passing the buck. But look at Genesis 3.15. By the way, this is the first promise of salvation in the Bible. The first promise of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, this is God, and he is uh, pronouncing judgment on the serpent, which is actually the devil, Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, that would be Satan and the woman, and between your seed, your seed would be those unbelievers, those would be the ones who... Uh, like the five kings that went to hide in the cave, I will put enmity between your seed, these would be the unbelievers and the woman, and between your seed, this was uh, the unregenerate man, and her seed, underlying her seed. Very unusual here. Her seed here is referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying her seed... Because Adam didn't have a human father. And always in genealogy in the Bible, it speaks of the man's line. I mean, you, you trace the lineage through the father. Christ didn't have a father, so he is the seed of the woman. If Christ had a human father, he would be disqualified to go to the cross because he'd have an old sin nature. It was imperative that Christ be virgin born. And here we see her seed referring to Jesus Christ. Now, I'll just I'm, I know I'm going fast here, but... And look what it says. We're in verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head. This is Jesus Christ is going to bruise Satan on the head. Actually, he's going to crush the head. Who's he talking about? He, Jesus Christ, shall bruise you... Satan on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What this is saying is that Satan got his licks in at the cross. Being bruised on the heel is a symbol of Jesus Christ going to the cross. He had to suffer. It would be the same as being bruised on the heel, but Satan's head is going to be crushed. The foot on the head. You got the, the typology there? Okay, now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. That's the last book in, last chapter in Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. This seems kind of strange right out of the blue. Look what it says. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Same typology. You got that? Who's going to do it? God is going to do it. He's going to crush Satan under our feet. You still with me? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 and verse 25. 1 Corinthians 
I'm kind of breaking in the middle of this, but this is referring to Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, For He must reign, and He is Jesus Christ. And when He's reigning, He's talking about the millennium. So write these little notes in, or you're not going to get the gist of this verse. You won't remember it. For He, Jesus Christ, must reign, and that means He's going to reign a thousand years, millennium, until He has put all enemies where? Under His feet. And then it says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is not going to be abolished to the, until the end of the millennium. However, we're going to see that Christ has already has victory over everything else. Verse 27, For He, put that here, God the Father, has put some things under subjection under His feet. Oh, no. <laughs> Y'all are awake. Okay. For He, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now, you notice that's past tense. Christ has already won the victory. And the way that they, 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 they put it is, I mean, the Scripture puts it, He, God the Father, has put all things in subjection. Why does it always say under His feet? Just get the idea. These captains are putting their foot on the neck of the enemy. And it has great significance. We're looking through the Bible and seeing shots at what this really means. Not just a little ritual they were doing. One more passage in the New Testament that shows that Christ already attained the victory over the powers of darkness. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. I'm just cutting to the chase on, and zeroing in on the verses that we relate to this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, When He, capital H, refers to Jesus Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who's He talking about rulers and authorities? Not just man. Those rulers and authorities in High places, this is talking about demonic forces. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, it says, through him. Mark out him. The Greek word there is autoi, A-U-T-O-I, and it's a dative. And autoi can be either masculine, singular, or it can be neuter singular. And it should be neuter here. They just trans it could, you can translate it either one. They put him, it should be it. Now let's go over it again. When he, Jesus Christ, disarmed well look at the end of verse fourteen. The last phrase in verse fourteen. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the what? The cross. That's the subject it's talking about. And so verse fifteen. Uh, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, verse 15 goes on with that thought. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through it, the cross. That's where the victory took place. He disarmed all the authorities and principalities and rulers of darkness already have been defeated at the cross. I'm right in the middle of where I was trying to get, and I don't have much time left, but I'm going to read something to you. Ah, oh, it's great. Already, by this point, when I was doing my study, I said, oh, man, it's all right there. Let me give you one more before I give you this, this uh, point I was going to make. Let's see. Uh, well, no, I think I'll go ahead and give you this first. This is a, a quote that I found from Charlie Clough, which is a pastor, a great 
actually theologian, and he wrote this with regards to what we're talking about here. And I think it puts things in perspectives and into perspective and helps us realize what's really going on because most people don't know what's really gone, going on. Here he has this. He says, here we have a situation where it's quite obvious that these demonic forces operate and that Christ has already obtained the victory. That's what this is talking about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus Christ has secured a victory that is real over these powers of darkness, and it happened at the cross. Talk to some of the missionaries that have, have to operate in the darkness of tribes where the demonic powers have completely obtained control over the areas. I was talking with one recently and he said the one thing that seems to convince these people and make them notice immediately when the Christian walks into the tribe is that the Christian, of all the people that come, only the Christian can walk into the tribe and not be afraid of the demons. And it floors them how people can walk into the tribe and not be afraid of these demons. Now get this, I'm not through with the quote yet. Why can a Christian missionary go into the darkest places? It doesn't matter whether it's Africa or whether it's in Indonesia. It doesn't matter where it is. There are demonic forces. The whole country, even in the Mideast, is go to India. All these places are saturated with demonic forces and the people are afraid of the voodoo. And all of the things that the, uh, speak of demonic forces and the Christian walks in there and they say, oh yeah, but you better beware of Juba Juba. Well, I don't know who Juba Juba is, but I know who Jesus Christ is. That's what they are amazed at. And it goes on, he goes on to say, now we have certain smug Americans who disbelieve this. Actually, they know less about the nature of the universe than the tribes in Africa. They know more about what's really going on. That is, the tribes, the people there, know more about what's really going on in history than they, than, uh, they that would be the smug Americans, uh, than they do because they have what is called, that is, the smug Americans, really believers anywhere, they have what is called a philosophically, philosophically a reductionist view of reality where you have reduced all reality to material forces. And reductionism is a pretty sad situation. You know, we don't see that demonic forces to the degree that, you, that they see it all else around the world. And that's due because of the pivot of believers. We have enough believers here and we still have enough uh, freedom to worship and do these type of things to where we are not consumed. We don't have to go around being afraid of demons. Why? Because Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Christ nailed the, the, the account that was against us to the cross, having made a procession, a public procession of victory over these demonic forces. And you know what this is showing? What Christ has done? He's put his foot on the head of Satan and all his demonic forces. And that's what Joshua is trying to show his leaders. He's showing his leaders. See, these, these kings were fanatical in their demonic activity. And he's saying, you don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to be afraid of the kings. You don't have to be afraid of the forces behind these kings because Christ has already, as far from our perspective looking back, won the victory. Joshua is showing them, look, I'm a testament. Joshua was old, by the way, at this time, probably in his 80s. And here he has all these younger blood, these younger men coming up, and they all are told to put their foot on the neck of these kings in total subjugation. And he's saying, Christ has won the victory. God is on our side. They can do nothing to you. And so when they would go from that place and they were fighting similar battles, and they were being crisis situations, they too could cry out to the Lord and He would give them deliverance because the victory has already been won. They are powerless against Christ, against God. But, of course, today we are very 
smug, and we don't think about... you. Talk to someone in a, in a normal course of a day and say something about demons or say something about angels, and what are you going to get? Sneer, <laughs> sneer. You know, <laughs> all these faces they make. That's hard for me. I want to slap when I see That's my first impression. But, you know, I'm not supposed to be a striker of persons. And I have to rebound and say, Lord, I know you died for them too. But that smirk, if you talk about these things, this, this is what's real. Do you understand that? I don't know how many angels or demons may be you know, watching us here, but the Bible says that they do. I told my daughter when she was small, I was reading the Bible, I was talking about demons, she said, don't tell me anymore. I said, what's the matter, hon? I'm afraid. I said, hon, there are demons, but you don't have to be afraid because greater is He who is in you than is in the world. You don't have to be afraid. The victory is already ours if we will just trust the Lord. By the way, that, let's end by going to 1 John 4.4. 4. I want to put that Scripture in context for us. And while you're turning that, I'm going to tell you that the part, the dessert is going to be next Sunday. <laughs> I got the dessert for next Sunday. Some of you will remember the star series, constellations and so forth. I'm going to show you that God's message is in the stars, at least relating to this. But that's for next time. First uh, John 4, 1 through 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, he's talking about spirits, see? There are... The spirit world is what he's talking about. So you're to test them. Many false prophets have gone out. By this you are to... Uh, by this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is, it's com- that is coming and now already is from the world. That you feel behind the scenes that really make it. Your heart is silent. He was dead because covenant already was. I just the Bible. Every single day, he burns. Eternal life is in Christ. You find your conscience to die in death by Jesus' own work. And you see already everything to tell our son with you. Growing grace and knowledge. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray it all in the name that is above all names, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and only Savior. Amen.